Hi, everyone. Welcome back, and thank you for joining us on today's episode of Fire of Genius, a podcast dedicated to all things intellectual property from the IP Theory Journal at Indiana University Maurer School of Law. Today, Taylor and I will be discussing Professor Peter Lee's newest paper titled Enhancing the Broader Social Impacts of Innovation, which is forthcoming in the Boston University Law Review's 2024 issue. Professor Lee is a professor at UC Davis School of Law, where he teaches patent law, copyright, and international intellectual property and development, just to name a few. Hi, Professor Lee. We're happy to have you here with us today. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here. Great. So let's get right into the questions. So first, can you give our audience a bird's eye view of your article and kind of how you ended up writing it? Sure. So I've been writing about technology, innovation, and IP for about 18 years now. Uh, Most of my research focuses on patent law. And obviously, society has produced some astounding technological advances that have greatly enhanced our quality of life. But it struck me that there are some gaps or some limitations in our current system for developing innovations. And so that kind of motivated this piece. It was this kind of notion that you know, sometimes the most urgent priorities aren't really being addressed. Sometimes technologies actually make some problems worse. And there are distributive effects to technologies that I think sometimes leave things to be desired. And so that really motivated this piece. Okay, so your paper focuses on aiming towards a more decentralized approach? Yeah, so, you know, the gist of the piece aims to make the innovation system more socially responsive. And so that is, you know, addressing all these factors, increasing the social benefits from innovation, decreasing the social harms, and improving distributive outcomes. And the particular model that it uses to achieve this is, as you mentioned, a decentralized or distributive ones, right? So, so you know, obviously there is an important role to be played by central policymakers, setting agendas and determining what types of technology society produces. But this piece is an attempt to push more authority and responsibility for promoting socially responsive innovation to other types of stakeholders. So entities like federal funding agencies, scientific journals and conferences, and the PTO. So in the first part of your paper, you discuss three critiques of the current setup or lack thereof for promoting socially valuable innovations. Can you explain your thought process for formulating these critiques? Sure. So this just arose again from an observation of what types of innovations our society is producing. And again, you know, this is a critical paper in some ways, but I don't want to undermine or discount the enormous value of innovation that are current system produces. But it does strike me that, you know, we have significant investment, let's say, in software startups or mobile gaming apps, which certainly have a certain amount of social value, yet we have underinvestment in pressing challenges like global climate change or neglected diseases. Additionally, as I mentioned earlier, there is this observation that sometimes technology makes things worse. And so this is particularly apparent with a lot of the public attention that's been focused on artificial intelligence. You know, AI can do some wonderful things, but it does raise the prospect of threatening privacy, of facilitating automated discrimination. And so there are ways in which technological progress actually makes things worse. And in terms of the distributive outcomes, you know, you can plunk down $1,000 and get an iPhone 15, which is incredibly technologically advanced, you know, but what about a very low-cost smartphone for unhealthed populations? 
uh, what about very low cost access to uh, the internet for uh, marginalized communities? So yeah, it strikes me that there's certainly gaps that can be filled in our current innovation system. That makes sense. So talking about the social benefit, what do you think goes into deciding what counts as a social benefit? Like, do people generally agree with what they consider to be a area that needs some help? Or is there some discrepancy on that? Right. So it's a great question. So there is going to be some disagreement. And, you know, there's a lot of social benefit to mobile gaming apps, you know, it provides hours of entertainment for lots of people. Yeah. I do think that there is some consensus around certain issues. So particularly in terms of health and welfare, I think there's pretty wide consensus that those should be high priorities for technological investments. Additionally, something like global climate change, I think there is, again, pretty wide consensus, not universal, but pretty wide consensus that that is a serious threat and certain technological solutions can help mitigate them. So you know, your point's very well taken. There will always be some disagreements this actually does try to put value judgments on technologies, but around certain types of technologies, again, health, welfare, the environment, climate change, I think there is pretty broad consensus that we need more investment. So does the market have any impact on how these benefits are thought of? So it does. And, you know, when we think about social benefit or social value, certainly market value is a component of that. And, you know, there is a way in which the market does actually report value, right? So if lots of people are demanding a certain technology, that is some measure of value, and that's going to be relevant. As I get into a little bit in the piece, there are ways in which the market does not report or reflect certain types of values. You know, so for instance, you know, why do we have more investment in treatments for male pattern baldness than for malaria and other neglected diseases? Yeah. Well, it's because of demand and the purchasing power of those who would want these treatments for male patent baldness. So market value can certainly be one guide to social value, but the market doesn't capture everything. And so this is an attempt to kind of, again, fill in those gaps and develop technologies that perhaps the market is overlooking. Right. So you mentioned the opioid crisis, among many others, as an example. How does your paper address these social harms? Sure, great question. So, you know, opioids were heralded as these fantastic painkillers. And I think in, in some pretty controlled environments, they can function as such. But as you know, there's been this widespread epidemic of addiction and death due to the opioid crisis. And so, for instance, if we operationalize this proposal, let's say that I'm a scientist who's applying for a grant to conduct some research to develop opioids. In my grant, I might want to disclose the potential social benefit. And again, in certain controlled environments, these could be very useful painkillers. But this proposal would also motivate me as a researcher to think about the potential harms, right? So the potential for overdose, for addiction. And going further, it would also motivate me to think about potential solutions. So, you know, in concert with developing an opioid, I could also think about developing a treatment for opioid addiction or overdose. And so just to kind of inculcate this cultural shift, that's kind of the primary thrust or aim of this piece. Doesn't seem like it could ever hurt to have people thinking proactively about those potential harms. 
that's that's my idea as well. And you know, uh, these are people who have, I would argue, the best information about these new technologies. You know, I'm the actual opioid researcher, or I'm an AI researcher. I think I'd then be in a pretty good position to anticipate some of the social harms of these technologies. Yeah, that makes sense. So now that we've talked about some of the problems, I'd like to set the stage with the current system. So you spent some time discussing the current more centralized system for innovation funding and regulation, as well as some of its critiques. Um, so first, can we go through what that centralized system looks like and how it kind of operates? Sure. So the centralized system, I would say, really takes two different forms. And so one is kind of on the ex-ante end, you know, what technologies are we actually funding? So in this context, I'm talking primarily about the federal government. And so one kind of centralized innovation governance is what I'm calling uh, mission-based science funding or mission-based research funding. And this typically arises where central policymakers have a discrete objective they want to achieve. And so they fund technologies to achieve that objective. And the classic example is the Manhattan Project during World War II, where the federal government devoted billions of dollars to developing nuclear weapons. Um, there are lots of other examples as well, right? So the Apollo program to put a person on the moon, more recently, Operation Warp Speed, right? A Trump administration program aimed at developing COVID-19 vaccines in a very rapid fashion. Mm -hmm. Here again, you have central policymakers determining a discrete objective and funding technologies to achieve that objective. So that's all on the kind of ex-ante end, right? So we're funding technologies. I also talk about on the ex-post end, another kind of centralized innovation governance, which is really kind of regulating technological harms, right? So there's some technology or innovation on society is creating some harms. Uh, how can we regulate it to constrain those harms or contain those harms? And so one example that I referenced in the piece is the new kind of framework for the AI Bill of Rights that was announced by the Biden administration. As we've been talking about, AI poses certain threats, it poses certain social harms. And so this framework for a Bill of Rights references a suite of federal laws and regulations that could constrain the harms of AI. But here again, this is really dependent on central policymakers recognizing those harms and then devising regulatory schemes to address them. That makes sense. So you talked briefly about mission-oriented funding as opposed to curiosity-based funding. So right. curiosity-based funding, as I understand it, is just kind of giving free reign to scientists to let them use their nice scientific brains and go find some good stuff. So what are some of the benefits of having that more autonomous scientific community and what are some potential drawbacks? Sure. So I think your characterization is spot on, right? So with mission-based funding, we have central policymakers determining the agenda and funding it. With open curiosity-based grants, we're allowing scientists to determine what they think are the most scientifically meritorious projects to pursue. And they're doing this not simply as individuals, but as members of the community, right? So the, the scientific community overall can help determine the most meritorious projects. And there are often processes of peer review that facilitate this kind of hashing out of what really should be our priorities. So in terms of advantages, this goes back to a debate over science policy that I referenced in the piece. 
you know, following World War II, there was consensus that governments should fund science and technological development. Science and technology were very important to winning World War II. But there was a debate in terms of the degree to which the central government could or should control the activities of researchers. And there were very vocal proponents on one side of the debate that argued in favor of scientific autonomy, mm -hmm. that we should have a federal government that generously funded scientists, but they took a kind of laissez-faire approach mm -hmm. and allowed scientists and the scientific community to determine their own priorities and pursue the projects that interested them. And I think one of the main advantages of this approach is that this is tremendously generative, right? So central policymakers may not know the most promising projects to pursue. They might think that they know the most promising projects and devote billions of dollars toward it, but then scientific projects that are actually more meritorious would get underfunded, right? So this notion that science is most robust when it's unencumbered by external control and when scientists themselves can determine their own priorities. There are, of course, downsides. Mm -hmm. So one downside is that scientists may end up pursuing projects that are incredibly intellectually interesting, but that don't translate to social gain or social benefit. Mm -hmm. There are also some critiques in terms of democratic accountability, right? After all, these are taxpayer funds. And so we should have some sort of oversight, some sort of supervision in terms of how researchers are using taxpayer money. Yeah, I hadn't considered the taxpayer portion of all of it, how they're kind of who's funding that. So they might want to have a say. It's our money, right? So yeah. we should have some say in how it's being used. Because we're both science people. All three of us yeah. are. <laughs> so for us, it's like, okay, let the scientists do their thing. I trust them. But is there kind of a place for a balance between a mission-based versus independent setup? Is there a way to kind of have a little bit of both? Right. So I think that striking a balance is very important. And I would say two things. So one, we can have both kinds of funding paradigms in place at the same time, right? So we can have an NSF that funds curiosity-based research based on what scientists and the scientific community think are the most meritorious projects. At the same time, we should have an Operation Warp Speed that addresses a very urgent and pressing problem that is discrete technological objectives. So these funding paradigms can proceed in parallel at the same time. And I think as well, my proposal is also another way of trying to strike that balance. Mm -hmm. So within a model of open curiosity-based research, I wanna kind of slightly nudge researchers toward thinking more about the broader social implications of their work. It seems like there is a potential for interplay between politics and research funding. How does the current centralized system exacerbate these issues? Sure, it's a great question. So I think it definitely exacerbates these issues. You know, we've seen in the past that federal research funding has become quite politicized. So one example that I referenced in the piece was during George W. Bush's presidency, he famously restricted federal funding for new lines of human embryonic stem cells. Now, these stem cells have tremendous potential for revealing uh, insights about biology, but there were political and religious concerns about research on this subject matter, and this helped motivate President Bush's moratorium on federal funding on new lines of 
stem cells. So there's a classic example where politics are helping to determine centralized research funding. And so there are other examples as well. You know, it's the nature of governments that oftentimes powerful economic interests are able to influence legislation and regulation. And so, for instance, internet service providers spent millions of dollars lobbying Congress to get favorable rules and debates over net neutrality. So this is yet another way in which centralized innovation governance is really susceptible to capture by interest groups. So as I was reading, I was considering the potential influence from different politicians, different administrations that might kind of push and pull in different directions. And if that every four year or so switch right, right. kind of impacts and holds up research when it doesn't necessarily need to. Right. And you know, another example is former President Donald Trump was famously quite opposed to climate change research, quite skeptical of climate change in general. And if I'm a climate change researcher, you know, these are long-term studies. I need long-term funding that could take decades. But if political whims change with changing administrations, that really produces a lot of instability in research funding. So as we've kind of discussed, the overall proposal of your paper is to set up this more distributed model of innovation governance that confers more authority to a variety of public and private entities to promote more socially responsive innovation. Obviously, social benefit is something that we expect to see from this, but what are some of the other benefits that might result from this more decentralized system? Right. So one advantage that I mentioned in the piece has to do with information. Central policymakers are somewhat constrained in the information that they have to make high-level innovation policy. And in fact, there's actually been so I'm talking on the news about how members of Congress don't understand artificial intelligence. And so it seems to be kind of a strange system where they're kind of calling the shots and trying to regulate a system they don't even understand. Yeah. So researchers arguably have the best information about the innovations that they're creating. And so they would be able to apply this information and kind of anticipating the potential harms of their technologies, as well as thinking about ways to mitigate those harms. Another advantage is one that we were just talking about, which is this tends to be a less politicized environment, right? So what we're really doing is we're kind of diffusing responsibility and decision-making power to a wider set of people, including arguably, you know, technically oriented people who are not as overtly political. And this, I would hope, would tend to diffuse politicization of these types of decisions. And then... Another advantage, again, kind of circling back to something we were talking about earlier, is that this retains more scientific and technological autonomy, right? So the government is not saying you have to do this type of research or you can't do this type of research. Researchers still have pretty wide reign to pursue the projects that they think are the most meritorious. But again, we're just trying to nudge them to think more about the broader social implications of their work. Great. So... You argue for relying on gatekeepers as part of the base of the triangle of the decentralized system. That's how I was picturing it in my head. I don't know if that's an accurate representation. Sure, that works. Can you explain who those gatekeepers are and what role they play in this decentralized system? Sure. So there are three primary sets of gatekeepers that I focus on in the piece. So the first is federal funding agencies, and I focus primarily on 
the National Science Foundation or NSF, right? So here we have a federal funding agency that's dispersing billions of dollars every year in research funds. And the idea is that it would, to a certain extent, tie research grants to a consideration of the broader social impacts of that research. Again, kind of referencing the criteria I mentioned earlier, you know, what is the overall social benefit of this research? What are some potential harms that may arise? And are there ways of mitigating those harms? And what are the distributive effects of this research? Right, so that's one kind of set of gatekeepers. Another is scientific journals and conferences, right? So, you know, these are private entities. These are not government entities, but obviously researchers want to publish. That's how they kind of advance in their career. So as such, journals and conferences hold a significant amount of sway over the behavior of researchers. And so in a typical example, you know, I might submit a manuscript to a journal to try to get it published. Historically, that journal has evaluated that manuscript primarily on technical criteria, right? So how scientifically meritorious is the research? But here again, I want to introduce considerations of broader social impact in those determinations. This can help determine what manuscripts get selected for publication and presentation. So as a corollary to these two gatekeepers, that is funding agencies and journals and conferences, we have peer reviewers. So oftentimes, you know, let's go back to NSF for a moment. It's not just NSF bureaucrats that are determining who actually gets the grants. They farm out these grant proposals to peer reviewers. These are independent academic scientists who also review the grant proposals. And so they too would kind of be recruited into this project of applying their own interpretive analyses to determine, you know, what are the broader social impacts of this grant proposal that I'm reading. So the third set of stakeholders, or the third stakeholder, I should say, is a patent and trademark office. The PTO processes hundreds of thousands of patent applications every year. Uh, as you know, because I know that you study patent law, they primarily apply neutral technical criteria to determine which inventions get a patent. Here again, I would introduce some consideration of the broader social impact, so the, the benefits, the harms, and the distributive effects of inventions uh, during examination. Great. It seems like there's nice, discrete tasks that all of the gatekeepers can take on to kind of help switch over to the decentralized system. Right. And, you know, another thing I, I want to point out is that these different gatekeepers would be active at different times or stages in a typical R&D life cycle, right? So at the very beginning, I've kind of got this idea for a research project. I apply to NIH or NSF for funding, so their broader impacts would be considered. I conduct some research. I actually have some findings I want to report. I submit a manuscript in a journal or a conference would also consider broader impacts. Further down the line, I actually have, I think, a patentable invention that I perhaps want to commercialize, and there the PTO would also consider broader impacts. Yeah, it's good to have different steps along the timeline that all are focused on yeah. broader impacts. That'll help. Yes. Um, so in your opinion, what's the greatest obstacle to overcoming, not necessarily overcoming, but to transitioning to this more decentralized system? Is there one thing that sticks out to you? So, you know, I, I think that 
The primary obstacle is cultural change. These are institutions that for decades have primarily focused on technical criteria in determining you know, who gets research funding, who gets published, or who gets to present, who gets a patent. So all institutions have path dependence and cultural change is very difficult. As kind of a corollary, and I address this quite a bit in the piece, I think another obstacle has to do with technical competence, right? So we're asking researchers, scientists, engineers, who are experts in their technical fields to now think about something quite different, which is the broader social impacts of their innovations. And they may not have ever thought about, for instance, the distributive impacts of their work. Yeah. And they may not feel technically equipped to make those assessments. As I mentioned in the piece, you know, there is a model for providing training to enhance technical competence. We could include non-scientist experts in reviewing broader impacts on review panels. So there are ways of surmounting these obstacles, but I think overall changing the culture of institutions is very difficult. Oh, yeah. So you emphasize that this proposed decentralized governance approach is soft and nudges innovators towards making more socially impactful research decisions. Can you explain how these nudges are different from traditional legislation? And is the soft approach critical for more long-term success? Sure. So this is, I think, a soft approach. And this, again, doesn't have a central policymaker requiring any type of research or prohibiting any type of research. You can research whatever you'd like. Um, so in that way, it's not hard, it's soft. It simply attaches certain valuable resources to considerations of broader impacts. It's entirely voluntary on the part of the scientist as to whether he or she will want to pursue a particular line of research. But hey, if you come asking for some of our money, our taxpayer money, then I am free to place certain conditions on those grants. You know, I think another illustration of this soft character is that if you want to rely completely on private money, that money might have no strings attached. You can pursue whatever research you want. Yeah. Um, and I think that this softer approach, getting to the second part of your question, is important for the long-term benefit of this approach. So again, what we're trying to ultimately do is inculcate cultural change. And, you know, some people are not too receptive to a hard approach where you have to do this, or you can't do this. And so over several years of applying for grants where, you know, we're kind of nudging people to think about broader impacts, you're going to be more appealing in grant review processes. Hopefully people will internalize this norm and this will effectuate the long-term cultural change that is so difficult yet so valuable. So this seems to connect to your discussion of the government acting as a norm entrepreneur. How can the government take on this role? Sure. So this goes to a part of the, the article where I discuss, you know, ways in which government regulates. And, you know, we're all in law school, so we're very familiar with more traditional regulation. You know, a legislature passes a law or there's a, an agency that uh, that adopts a rule and so these are kind of traditional ways of regulating. Well, the government also regulates by inculcating certain norms, right? So, you know, let's say that I want I want to reduce littering. Well, a more formal way of doing this is that as a legislature, 
I pass a law that, that imposes some fine for littering. On the other hand, I could, as a government entity, fund a public service campaign that puts up billboards or, you know, airs commercials that tells people that, you know, the environment is beautiful, we shouldn't be littering, right? Mm -hmm. So there are ways in which the government can influence and regulate people other than hard and fast laws and rules, but through shaping norms. And I talk about this in the piece, but there are a variety of ways in the scientific context where government activity has helped shape scientific norms. And I argue that this is another model where that could take place. So speaking of models, you talk about the National Science Foundation or the NSF as sort of a model for a more decentralized innovation system. So what is it that makes the NSF so special? The NSF plays a very important role in funding basic science. It also plays a very important role in funding kind of open curiosity-based science. And so there, you know, we have a very kind of decentralized system. And I think that that is a prime location in which to place um, this framework of considering broader social impacts. As I mentioned in the piece, what I would love is for this model to ultimately migrate to other federal funding agencies, some of which have a bit more of a mission-oriented focus. For instance, NIH funds billions of dollars of biomedical research every year, and I think it would be very useful to, again, consider grant proposals not simply based on technical criteria, but on broader impacts, right? Social benefits, social harms, distributive impacts. There are lots of other federal agencies that also fund research. To a certain extent, some of them are actually already doing this. Mm -hmm. And there is a sense that, you know, ultimately, these agencies are accountable to taxpayers. And so there has to be some sort of return on public investment. And I think that this is one way of kind of increasing that return on public investment. I thought I remembered reading that NSF focuses more on applied research as opposed to pure basic? Is it the opposite? So it's the opposite, although it's actually a mix um, and it's evolved over time. So historically, NSF focused primarily on basic research over the ensuing decades. So NSF really began operating in the 1950s. Over the ensuing decades, it has funded more applied research, but it still actually funds a considerable amount of basic research. So it really does both. Okay. Good. So then is requiring scientists to focus on, even though they have free reign for kind of curiosity-based, is narrowing them down to something socially beneficial still kind of operate as a constraint on curiosity-based research, or is that not really a consideration? Right. So it's definitely a consideration. And I think it could operate as a constraint, but it doesn't have to. And I think in an ideal case, it would not operate as a constraint. So I think it's going to be intrinsically easier to discuss the social benefits or harms or distributive effects of research when it's applied, right? So applied research is that which is more tangible. It actually leads to products in society. So it might be easier to discuss broader impacts. That's not to say that you can't discuss the broader impacts of basic blue sky curiosity-based research. In fact, you know, basic research has enormous broader impacts. They might just take more years to manifest. And so I don't really, I, I hope that this doesn't operate as a constraint to disfavor basic research because you can have the same types of analyses 
of social harm, social benefits, and distributive effects for blue sky basic research as well. Okay, so then when it comes to the government funding institutions, as we have talked about a bit, you talk about the CHIPS Act in your paper and how this is kind of a step in the right direction. So can you kind of, yes. I wrote my note on the CHIPS Act, so I'd love to hear, okay. hear your little blurb on this. Okay, sure. So as you know, the CHIPS and Science Act is primarily known for massively increasing investment in semiconductor manufacturing, but it actually does a lot of things. And so there are other provisions of the act that I focus on. And so in particular, with respect to this broader impacts criterion, the CHIPS and Science Act allocates funds to NSF for training its reviewers and grant proposers on broader impacts. And so this, I think, is very important for developing that technical competence. In addition, it actually adds these other criteria that NSF should consider in awarding research grants. So research proposers must include an ethics and societal impacts kind of disclosure that considers the broader um, social impacts of their innovations or their research. And this may include any foreseeable risks from this research, as well as ways of mitigating those risks. And this, I think, is very important because historically, broader impacts is primarily focused just on the positives of research, uh, which are very important. But here we have the Chips and Science Act really requiring that people start thinking more about the negatives of research. Now, I mentioned this in the piece, but it's kind of odd in that this consideration of potential negatives is not formally integrated into the broader impacts criterion. I argue that it should. I think it would just be a cleaner framework. But I think it's definitely a move in the right direction to consider social risks and ways of mitigating those risks. So in our discussion about uh, broader impacts, you discussed the elusive broader impact standard used by the NSF and its grant review process. First, can you explain to our audience what that standard currently looks like and how it operates? Sure. So, you know, the question here is, how does the NSF actually decide which grant proposals to fund? And for decades now, it's applied two criteria. So one is intellectual merit, which I think is the more straightforward one, right? What is the scientific merit of this proposed line of research? The other is broader impacts, which speaks to the broader impacts of this research in terms of advancing certain social, political objectives. And it's interesting because broader impacts began as an internal rule developed by the NSF. Over time, it's actually become codified in statute. So now there's actually a statute that lists certain factors that should be considered in broader impacts. And there's a whole slew of factors. I won't recite all of them, but they include things like you know, contributions to economic competitiveness, to health and welfare, to national defense. So it's always been the case that NSF has considered non-technical criteria in determining who gets a research grant. Uh, this is now codified in statute. And my proposal really just builds on this development to kind of abstract from the current statutory factors what I think are some more flexible factors, and it also seeks to expand this even beyond NSF to other funding agencies. Great. So you mentioned some of the considerations. So do the projects chosen by NSF currently reflect these goals, in your opinion? 
Right. So that's a really good question. They do to a certain extent, but I would really like to improve the impact of broader impacts. You know, there is a, a wide set of critiques of the broader impacts criterion that's kind of just window dressing that scientists really ignored or overlook it. I think that's true to a certain extent, but I suggest certain uh, reforms in the piece. I think it could tighten up this criterion, make scientists take it more seriously, such that it would have more bite. Right. So what are some of those procedural ways to overcome these struggles that you talked about? Sure. So one is kind of greater clarity on the criterion itself, right? So we have the statutory factors that Congress enumerated. We also have guidance from NSF, but there is still some uncertainty on the part of scientists and peer reviewers as to what exactly is a broader impact, you know, what's actually, what's going to be uh, considered under that ambit. And so getting clarity around the criterion, I think would be helpful. In addition, I think it would be useful to clarify the precise weight that broader impacts plays in the decision-making process, particularly relative to intellectual merits. As I mentioned, a lot of scientists don't actually know how important it is, but if NSF actually came out with strict guidance saying that, for instance, 30% of your overall score will be attributed to broader impacts, you know, then people will take it quite seriously. And another obstacle, which I referenced earlier, is this notion of technical competence, right? So number one, scientists may not know what a broader impact is. And number two, even if that's clarified, they may feel ill-equipped to actually assess broader impacts. And so I think that a lot of technical assistance and training can be helpful in this regard. And I think as well, including non-scientists in review panels, people like uh, you know economists, historians of science, bioethicists, sociologists, who has some expertise in evaluating the broader impacts of research, I think they can play a very valuable role in these review processes. Awesome. So I'm still focusing on the broader impacts analysis. In your piece, you propose three factors to structure and strengthen this analysis. And I believe those are social benefit, potential social harms, and the distributional effects, which we've kind of been talking about throughout this discussion. So do you have any preference for how these factors should be evaluated? Like is one more important than the other, or is it just kind of a general look at those three factors? Right. So I wouldn't say that one is more important than the other. I think that they're all important. I will say as well that we need kind of a holistic and flexible approach because some of these factors are going to be more relevant to certain lines of research than others. And so, you know, that's why... I kind of shy away from having hard and fast proposals as to, you know, 30% should be this factor, 30% should be this factor. It's really kind of context dependent. That makes sense. More flexibility, especially when it's a new system that you're proposing. Right. And especially when you're going to have lots of different types of stakeholders involved in interpreting and applying these criteria. So one thing I was wondering about when I was reading this do you think that specifically for the potential social harms factor where the inventor or innovator would have to kind of comment on the potential social harms, do you think there's room for researchers to kind of hide and squirm away from that? I know we talked about right. like involving other non-scientists to kind of evaluate that. I was just kind of curious about that. Sure. So that that threat certainly exists. And, you know, if you think about it, I'm applying to a funding agency to fund my project. 
there's a clear incentive to extol all the benefits of my research and to downplay or simply not even disclose any of the negatives. I think that's counteracted by a couple of things. So one, we actually see a lot of instances where scientists themselves are quite willing to disclose the risks of their research. So this happened right around the advent of recombinant DNA technology. So this notion of gene splicing, you know, taking DNA from one organism, um, integrating it with DNA from another, you know, a very promising, exciting innovation. But scientists themselves raised red flags. They thought, you know, this poses a lot of risks. And so scientists were quite willing to kind of put the brakes on research and self-disclose. So another example has to do with artificial intelligence, where AI researchers themselves are very cognizant of the social risks of their innovations, and they want more disclosure and discussion about them, right? So, you know, we do see empirical instances of scientists self-disclosing the harms of their technologies, which I think is very responsible. But then secondly, another counteracting factor, one that you reference, is that you know, we're not simply relying on self-disclosure. We have peer reviewers who can also ascertain the social harms of research. We have NSF program officers. We have uh, other uh, expertise in the NSF as well. So to the extent that we're employing lots of different parties to all kind of review these projects, then I think that it's more likely that the risks will in some fashion be disclosed. Having more eyes on it could help with that for sure. Right. So we're all patent people here. So your paper looked at the current patent system and how it can act as the gatekeeper that we talked about. And so as patent students, we're quite familiar with the traditional market mantra of the patent system that kind of lets the market decide whether or not a patented invention is actually useful in the real world or not, as opposed to judicial or government judgment. So Although moral value is usually not assigned to patentable inventions, there's a moral utility consideration that you discussed in your piece. And so is that kind of making a comeback or can you explain that doctrine and how it might be useful in this situation? Sure. So as you know, one of the requirements of patentability is utility. And there are several different variants of utility, all of which have to be satisfied. And there is historically a doctrine known as moral or beneficial utility, which basically asks, is an invention consistent with public morals? And if it's not, it would fail the moral utility requirements and you could deny the patent. This had a lot more traction in the 19th century than it does now. So for instance, inventions that facilitated assassination, those might be denied on moral utility grounds because they're not consistent with public morals. Over time, the moral utility doctrine has become much watered down, significantly watered down. And so there's a, a case that I reference in the article called Juicy Whip, where an explicitly deceptive invention was scrutinized on moral utility grounds, and it was in fact held to be useful. And this notion of moral utility was very much narrowed by the federal circuit. And the court basically said that you know, the PTO and patent courts are not arbiters of public morality. There are other agencies like the Federal Trade Commission that can regulate deceptive practices. Uh, we're really going to take moral considerations out of the patent system. So, you know, my proposal doesn't directly disturb that doctrinal development. So, you know, moral utility as a doctrine is still rather weakened. 
what I would want to bring in, though, I think are slightly different considerations. So not exactly, we're not exactly talking about morality versus immorality. We're talking about broader social impacts. That would be a separate set of criteria that would be evaluated during patent examination. And unlike the utility doctrine, it wouldn't affect the ultimate grant or denial of a patent application. It would affect the timing of examination. And we would accelerate applications that dealt with inventions of high social value. And we would decelerate examination of very risky inventions that did not have countervailing social benefit. Great. So do you think there will be an inconsistency among examiners when reviewing broader impact statements? Should there be a list of technological areas that should be prioritized? Right. So, so yes to both. And this is the necessary cost of any system that employs broad standards and lots of different stakeholders. So different patent examiners will interpret broader impacts differently. Um, but as to the second part of your question, I think that there is a lot of value to having some guidance from either the PTO or Congress on types of inventions that would score high in a broader impacts analysis. And I think that we actually have some track history here. So we have had pilot programs with respect to green technologies. We have a patents for humanity program that already rewards certain inventions of high social value. So I think if that expertise does exist to articulate certain guidelines to guide examiners through this process. The broader impacts analysis would not in the main affect whether or not you get your patents, but it would affect the timing of examination. But I think this makes sense for a number of reasons. You know, as it is, the PTO has limited resources. So to the extent that um, we want to focus on inventions of high social value, I think that makes some policy sense. And then with respect to very risky technologies, there might be a lot of benefit to allowing the inventor to think about this for another couple of months or years. And perhaps they will determine that this is not an invention worth pursuing or patenting, or they might develop technological measures to mitigate the risks. That makes sense. Great. So we've had great discussion and learned a lot about broader impacts and how a decentralized system of innovation governance can support those impacts. Professor Lee, what do you want the audience to take away from our discussion today? Oh, uh, well, first of all, I very much enjoyed the conversation and thanks for all the prep work that you did. It was uh, <laughs> quite, quite a bit, I can tell. You know, I would say a couple of things. So one, what I'm really interested in is inculcating this cultural change, right? So again, there is great value to technological progress. It has enhanced our quality of life in many ways, but there is a sense in which the technologies that we are developing are not addressing the most urgent priorities of society that may actually make some problems worse and that might have some undesirable distributive effects. And so, you know, if I can encourage a cultural change among scientists and engineers to think about the broader implications of their work, then I think that something meaningful will have been achieved. As a related or on a related note, I would say that Exact precision is really not that important. It's very difficult to predict the broader social impacts of any line of research or any technology. We don't have to have exact accuracy for this proposal to be successful. If we inculcate this cultural change, I think success will have been achieved. 
Well, I know I really enjoyed reading your paper and preparing questions and especially talking to you today. So thank you again to Professor Lee for joining us today. And thank you to our audience for joining us on this episode of Fire of Genius. You can follow us on Twitter at C-I-P-R-M-A-U-R-I-P-T-H or reach out to us on our website at iptheory.indiana.edu. Thank you for listening and we hope you tune in again next week.